The heart of the Buddhist teachings is the freeing of the mind from the deep habit, habit patterns and conditioning that we're quite familiar with of greed and desire, of fear, of anger, of envy, of jealousy. It's really about the freeing of our mind from all the forces of delusion, of ignorance, so that we awaken from this sleep of ignorance. And everything we do in our practice, all the cultivation of generosity, of sila, of morality, of non-harming, of concentration, of insight, of wisdom, they all serve this goal of freedom. That's the purpose of them. And the Buddha spoke very directly to this. He said, this holy life does not have worldly gain, honor, or renown for its benefit. It does not have attainment of virtue for its benefit, or attainment of concentration, or knowledge and insight for its benefit. It is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. This is a very direct statement about what we're doing here. Even though we employ all the wholesome activities of generosity, of sila, of morality, of concentration, of insight, they are not the ends in themselves. But the point of our practice, the purpose of our practice, is liberation, is awakening. So the question I'd like to discuss this evening is how both on retreat, in intensive retreat like this, and in our daily lives, how can we stay on track? How can we keep this goal of awakening, of liberation, uh, as the pole star of our activities? One of the unique aspects of the Buddhist teaching is that it both begins and ends with right understanding. Now it's not a question of belief, it's not a question of different dogmas that we have to believe, it's not a question of doing rituals. Our whole spiritual journey unfolds through our own investigation of what is true. So we always come back to our experience in the moment, what is actually true in this moment. When we build something, when we build a house, what is the most important part of the building? The most important part is the foundation. Because even if we built something that was wonderfully designed and beautiful to look at, if it were resting on an unstable foundation, it would not be of much benefit to us. 
in our practice, we need the foundation of right understanding to provide a context, to provide a meaning for all the ups and downs and the twists and turns of our practice. When I was at that retreat for the Yale Law students, somebody mentioned something that really struck me as a wonderful image for our practice. They were talking about the word meander. Now most of us think of meander as meaning wandering aimlessly. I'm just going here and there without much purpose. But they were talking about meander in a different context as describing the movement of water to the ocean. Now, because all water finally ends up in the ocean. Going here and there, meandering. But what was striking about this comment was that given the topography, and given the climate, and given all the formations and the soil, and given all the conditions, this meandering of the water to the ocean was actually accomplished in the shortest distance, given all the circumstances of the land. And when I heard that, it was such a wonderful image for practice. You know, because we're going through all the ins and outs and ups and downs of our own inner conditioning of our minds and bodies but we usually get so concerned with each turn of the river, you know, and it's going one direction, it's going another, and we lose sight of the fact that it may well be the shortest distance to the ocean of Buddhahood. And we just have to unwind you know, all the patterns of our conditioning. But what is the force of gravity that makes sure that the meander really is the shortest distance rather than an aimless wandering. I think the force of gravity in our practice which pulls us to enlightenment is precisely this quality of right understanding. There are a few powerful reflections which keep bringing our mind back to the right understanding of the Dharma. And they're called the mind-changing reflections because they change our mind, they turn our mind towards the Dharma, towards what is true, towards compassion. And so they're very powerful forces as we contemplate here on retreat, and also contemplate them in our lives. They're mind-changing reflections because they turn the mind away from complacency, and they turn the mind away from superficiality. They help us to look deeply, to see deeply, 
one of these contemplations or reflections is the deepening understanding, the deepening reflection on the truth of impermanence. We need to go from an intellectual understanding of this to a place where it is our own living wisdom because we all know that things change. Everybody knows that. You go to downtown Barrie, that hubbub of excitement and activity. You could stop anybody on the street if you find someone. <laughs> and you could ask them, do things change? Anybody, of course things change. We know it intellectually, we know it conceptually, but we don't really live from that place of understanding. We have not integrated that into our own lives. Because if we did, if we truly knew, if we truly understood, there would be no attachment in the mind. We get attached, we cling, because somehow we're acting from that place of delusion, of ignorance. From thinking on some level that yes, this, this will last. We see this very clearly when we take a look at our relationship to our bodies. If we deeply understood impermanence, what happens is that the heart and mind relax. We let go, we stop clinging. But what is our relationship to our bodies? And very often, there's an attachment to our bodies staying a certain way. Staying young, staying healthy. And yet, it doesn't happen. Because the very nature of these bodies is to get old, is to get sick, is to die. If we're attached to them being a certain way, then when they change, either through accident, or through illness, or just through the aging process, the, the more we're attached to them staying a certain way, the more we suffer when they change. And these things are not accidents. No, it's not that disease or accidents or illness or aging happens to some and not to others. This is the process. This is the natural law. Can we understand that and relax into that without attachment, without clinging, and thereby minimizing our suffering. I think I may have mentioned one of the Goldstein laws of practice and of life. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> 
there is always something come out. You, you know, you finally have a sitting and you feel easy and the body is light and your mind is calm for a few minutes, you know, and peaceful. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a new pain in the back or the knees hurt again or the mind is restless again or whatever. This is the nature of change. It just does not stay the way we'd like it to stay. Can we get that? <laughs> What's amazing is that it's so difficult for us to get it because it's in our face all the time. But somehow we need to absorb the truth that change is the nature. It is not going to stay any one way. It's this understanding, it's this reflection, which it said inspired the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, in his quest for awakening. It said that he thought, why should I, who am subject to change and decay, keep seeking that which is subject to change? Why do we spend our whole lives keeping going after yet other changing phenomena, as if that's the goal and the, the aspirations in our lives. For what? Yet when we look at how we live a good part of the time, we find that this is precisely what we're doing. We're leaning forward, we're anticipating And we're imagining the next hit of experience. It might be the next project that we're doing, you know, or the next vacation, or the next retreat, or the next relationship. Or in the context of a retreat, it's probably the next meal, you know, or even the next breath. You know, somehow we're, we're kind of leaning forward into the next moment of experience as if the next moment's experience will finally do it for us and finally resolve our yearning. What's so amazing about this very seductive power of the world is that when we look back at our own experience, at everything that's happened in our lives, we see how ephemeral it is. We see how dreamlike it is. You know, when you think of the most wonderful experiences you've had or the most terrible experiences you've had, where are they now? You know, in this moment, as we're sitting here. And yet when we look ahead, even though we know from our own experience that everything in our past has dissolved, has vanished, when we look ahead, we still are enticed, we're seduced, we're dazzled by all the possibilities in front of us, reaching out, looking ahead, anticipating, yes, this is going to do it for me. It's the reflection, the insight, the 
deep seeing of the truth of impermanence that reminds us it's all part of a passing show. Now there's no real substance to any of it. We really begin to see the insubstantial nature of phenomena of our experience. My first Dharma teacher, Munindra, Anagarika Munindra, one of the things he used to say often is, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking? We go through these experiences endlessly. This is the wheel of samsara. And we keep grasping at the next hit. But where is the end if we stay on this cycle? The meaning of the word samsara in Pali and Sanskrit, it means perpetual wandering. And you can see because in the last six weeks, for those of you who've been here, or the last few days, for those of you who just came, it's the same process over and over and over again. Seeing, hearing, thinking, smelling, tasting. Now what's important to understand is that there's nothing wrong with these experiences. There's no problem in the experiences themselves. It's just that they do not have the capacity to fulfill our deepest aspirations for happiness. So if we can understand this, then we stop looking in them to fulfill those deepest aspirations. There's a wonderful paradox of spiritual life. As objects of desire, all of these experiences, you know, sight and sound and sensation and thought and emotion, whatever it is, as objects of desire, they always leave us unfulfilled. Because of their impermanent nature. They can't possibly be the source of our fulfillment. And yet, as the object of mindfulness, they become the vehicle for awakening. Well, this is an amazing thing. The very same play of experience, this endlessly passing show, as objects for desire, leave us frustrated and unfulfilled. As objects of mindfulness, become the source of our liberation. So it's all in how we're relating to them, how we understand them, bringing right understanding to our experience. So the implication of this is not that we pull away from experience, but rather that we learn to not hold on, to not grasp. And this difference is reflected in two words which we use, often interchangeably, not appreciating what I feel is a very important distinction. 
And that is the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Now, because detachment implies a pulling back, a withdrawal, even a kind of indifference. Non-attachment simply means we are there fully in the experience of what's arising, but without holding on, without grasping. It's a very different, different inner stance. This liberating insight of impermanence comes from a very clear, deep seeing of change on a momentary level. And one of the things that happens in a retreat like this, where the mindfulness gets refined and concentration gets refined, at times we begin to see things arising and passing just in every moment. That things are moving so quickly and changing so quickly that we see the futility of trying to hold on, trying to grasp. We would not get so totally lost in the drama of a movie if we saw the separate frames of film. If we saw what was really going on, we would not be so lost in the story. How do we do watching the movies of our minds? You know, what is the world that we live in? It's mostly a projection of our own minds. But we become so enthralled by the drama of it, by the story of it, that we're not seeing the momentary arising and passing of thoughts and images and feelings and sensations. And as we do, as this awareness of the momentary change becomes more apparent, we do relax, we let go, we soften. It's the mind released. The experience of freedom also comes from the reflection or the contemplation of impermanence on more ordinary levels as well. It doesn't only have to be in this very detailed microscopic attention. It can be in the most ordinary aspects of our lives. A couple of years ago, I was on retreat, doing a self-retreat. I was just walking down to Gaston Pond. I was just walking mindfully. And when I got to the pond, I had a very obvious thought that everything I had experienced five minutes ago when I started my walk, ten minutes ago, was completely gone. And then I thought, not ten minutes ago, five minutes ago, one minute ago, thirty seconds ago, one second ago. It's like our experience just keeps disappearing moment after moment, and new experiences keep arising. When we look, just in this most ordinary way, at the nature of our experience, when you get up, 
you know, at the end of the talk, you, you go out, just watch, just be open, you know, to the movement of your body, the sensations of your body, and the sights that you, you see, and the sounds that might be arising. And moment after moment, watch what happens to those experiences. They're all vanishing. Vanishing and new ones re-arising. There's nothing there to hold on to. The problem is that this insight is so ordinary. This truth of impermanence is so ordinary that we overlook it. It's happening all the time throughout the day at every sense door. So it's not that we have to be super yogis in order to understand this. We simply have to pay attention. What is happening in our experience? What is the nature of it? But because it is so ordinary, we often overlook it, we don't pay attention to it, and so we are missing the opportunity the every day, every hour, every moment opportunity to not hold on. And so in our various ways, we grab, we get attached, we anticipate. One of the teachings which you've probably heard already, But it's such a wonderful teaching. You know, so simple and so direct from Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So our practice is so simple, and yet, as you know, it's not always easy because of the habit patterns of our holding, of our attachments, of our looking forward, of our anticipation. It's through this reflection, this mind-changing reflection, and more than reflection, or not only the reflection on the thinking level, but reflection on the level of direct experience of seeing the momentary changing nature. That's what releases the mind from the grip of attachment. Careful observation on some very obvious truths can really awaken us from the sleep of complacency in our lives. Because it's so easy to simply get carried away and swept along by the currents of our lives. And the beauty and the power of a retreat like this is we take the time to step back from that current and to really examine and see what's going on. There are a few very obvious truths which are worth reflecting on and going into. 
the end of birth is death. Again, this is obvious. Everybody knows this. But have we taken this in? Have we really internalized this? That our life is only getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It's like our lives are running out. What's so surprising is that so often our awareness of death seems limited to other people. It's always other people that seem to be dying. You know, and we don't very often reflect that truth back to ourselves that this is true for ourselves and the people we love and this is the nature of it. That we really are all dying. Can we let this in? Imagine yourselves. Just really imagine yourself on your deathbed. Imagine yourself in the very process of dying. What is it that we're most attached to? What are we holding on to? What are we afraid to let go of? It's a very illuminating exercise. And we will be in that situation. So it's good to begin to explore the implications of that truth now. You know, while there is strength of mind and clarity of mind and possibility for real wisdom, Is it possible to reflect on this great truth of impermanence, our own death, and the deaths of the people that we're closest to? Can we let that in? Are we afraid of it? Or does it inspire us? I want to read a little bit about the death of uh, Thoreau, who died quite young. He was in, I believe, his 40s. Uh, he was a very extraordinary person. I've, I've read a lot of his writings and I've always appreciated uh, sort of his understanding and his perception and his humane quality, you know, with respect to nature. But I hadn't realized what a very accomplished consciousness he was. So he was very, he was very ill. And this is a friend who was writing about him. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die and I set that down, 
so of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. <laughs> then I spoke only once more to him and cannot remember my exact words, but I think my question was substantially this. You seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Then he answered, one world at a time. <laughs> Thoreau the yogi. You know, he really understood this deeply. That was an amazing manifestation of this understanding of impermanence, of death. And that this is the natural the natural process for us all. Okay, so the end of birth is death. This is one important way to look at the truth of impermanence. Second, second very helpful contemplation is the realization that the end of all accumulation is dispersion. Now, so many of us spend some amount of our lives, at least, if not a great deal, in one way or another accumulating things. And it may be things, it may be people, it may be projects, whatever, whatever our little hobbies happen to be. But it's largely or often around accumulation. And yet, A consequence of the truth of change is that no matter what we accumulate in whatever domain, it always ends in dispersion. Either it gets dispersed or we get dispersed. <laughs> Some years ago, I saw a documentary on the life of Sir Lawrence Vanderpost who was a South African philosopher and naturalist and explorer and a poet and writer and really an amazing Renaissance man. Uh, after World War II, he was living in England working for BBC. And while he was in South Africa living there, uh, he developed this very strong interest and affinity with the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. So when he went, was he working for BBC, he arranged with them to film a documentary you know, of, of the Bush people. And so in this documentary of his life, they had footage you know, of, of when he went back to the Kalahari and met with them. And there was one incident that was really quite uh, striking to me. They're out in the middle of the desert, um, nothing around for miles. And this small little, uh, the Bushmen uh, travel and live in very small bands. Now, so there were 
small group of people, 10 or 12 people. And Sir Lawrence Van der Post and some of his associates. And at one point in the documentary, Sir Lawrence asked the leader of the Bushmen how long it would take to prepare for a journey into the desert, you know, or through the desert. And the man replied, you know, about a minute. And just the whole little clan, kind of in, in about a minute, gathered up their few implements of survival and walked off into the desert. And the very next shot you know, in the documentary is Sir Lawrence and his friends loading their Land Rover with trunks and boxes and you know all the adventure equipment. <laughs> and it took hours to load the Jeep. And it was such a statement, basically, of how we live. You know? And I'm not suggesting, necessarily, <laughs> that it's either desirable or even possible that we live like the Bushmen of the Kalahari. Uh, but it does point to something. <laughs> you know, and are we really spending our lives accumulating a lot more than we need? No, now we burden ourselves with a lot more than we need. Uh, from not contemplating, from not deeply seeing the truth that all accumulation is going to finally end in dispersion. So the end of birth is death, the end of accumulation is dispersion. A reflection that touches most of us very deeply and is very hard to integrate into our lives is the understanding, the deep understanding, that inevitably all meetings, all relationships end in separation. Now, all our relationships, from a certain perspective, are like people meeting in a dream. You know, where there's some meeting and spending time together, and then one way or another, either after a shorter or a longer period of time, there is inevitable separation. It might be through choice, it might be through death, lots of reasons. But how often do we get so entangled in our relationships, so completely intertwined, that these inevitable separations become the cause of tremendous sorrow for us, you know, and tremendous grief? This is, this is a very common uh, circumstance in our lives. And the Buddha as with so much else, he, he expressed it so precisely. He said, in the course of countless lifetimes, more tears have been shed over the separation from loved ones than there is water in all the great oceans. Now, it's such a usual human response to the truth of separation. But to the degree that 
we can understand the truth of change, the truth of impermanence, the inevitability of separation, even though we still may quite naturally have these feelings of loss and sorrow, we won't so much drown in the waters of that sorrow. We'll have some understanding, we'll have some wisdom. This is the truth, how things are. This is an expression of the truth of change. The more deeply we can see into the nature of impermanence, we begin to distinguish between love and attachment. Begin to see that these are two very different feelings. We also begin to distinguish, and this may be a little more difficult to see, we begin to distinguish the difference between loss and grief or loss and sorrow. For many people, the experience of the loss, the experience of loss, is inextricably connected to the feeling of sorrow. But they're really quite different feelings. And it was expressed very beautifully by the Buddha when two of his chief disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, who were the two chief monks, two chief disciples, second only to the Buddha, they were older than the Buddha and so died before him. And when they died, he said that it's as, it's as if the light of the sun and the moon have disappeared from the sky. It was a very poignant and powerful statement. It's like the light of the sun and the moon have disappeared from the sky. So there was a clear understanding and recognition of loss. And yet, according to everything we know of the Buddha and his own statements and teachings, he was free from sorrow, free from grief about that loss. And it's very interesting to see, and this takes a careful observation, a careful looking, of how really grief comes out of our non-acceptance of the feeling of loss. Loss is what happened. Loss is the truth of the situation. Somebody was there, and then in one way or another, they're not there. So the loss is the truth of that. And we can feel the loss. But how do we relate to that? Can we be accepting of that feeling? Or do we not like it? because it's so painful? Do we have aversion to it? And so close ourselves to that feeling. To the extent that we have aversion to the feeling of loss, it turns into grief. To the degree that we can open to the feeling of loss, we are simply there in the understanding of the nature of change. So the very subtle and powerful implications of this truth for how we live our lives and the degree to which we suffer and the degree to which we remain free.
this contemplation of impermanence. And not theoretically, not philosophically, really seeing it in our lives, seeing the truth of it. It reorients us away from attachment, away from clinging, more to care, more to loving-kindness, more to compassion. It's the seeing of impermanence that reorients us to the experience of freedom because we're no longer trying to hold on to that which in its nature is changing. So the second reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma, towards greater compassion, greater openness, is the reflection on the law of karma. You know, and most of you are familiar with this. It's the basic understanding that everything we do, that all of our actions have consequences. They have results. This law of cause and effect can be seen so clearly in a very obvious way just in our relationship to the environment. You know, we pollute the environment, what happens? We pollute the air, we pollute the water, we pollute the earth. There's more disease, there's more illness, there's more distress. It's so, the cause and effect is so clear and it's amazing that it takes so long as a human society to realize this. But that's fairly obvious. The Buddha went one very essential step further in clarifying this law of cause and effect. And all the possibilities for our happiness in this life and the possibilities even for the entire spiritual journey rests on this further clarification. So this is a very critical point in our understanding. He said what most completely determines the result in our own lives of our actions, what most completely determines the result is the motivation behind the action. What most completely determines the results in our own lives in terms of happiness or suffering is not the action itself, but the motivation behind the action. It was expressed very succinctly in one teaching that says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So motivation is key. It's absolutely essential. In terms of all our actions of body, of speech, of mind, what is our motive behind it? This reflection on the law of karma contemplation on the law of karma reminds us of the importance of our actions and the overarching importance of the motivation. 
Padmasambhava, who was the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism uh, to Tibet, and one of the great, great yogis of all times, he said, though my view, my understanding is as vast as the sky, that is my view of emptiness, the absolute nature, though my view is as vast as the sky, my understanding or my concern with the law of cause and effect is as fine as a grain of barley flour. He had this amazing wisdom of the emptiness of all phenomena, and yet his attention to the law of cause and effect, to the actions, to the motives, were as fine as a grain of barley flour. That's the kind of care we need to bring to our own actions, to our own motivations. So given the importance of this, of understanding what our motivations are, we see that it needs a tremendous courage and openness and honesty to look. This is not an easy thing because there's a lot going on in ourselves that's not so wholesome. You know, we have many beautiful sides and qualities of generosity and kindness and love, but it's not the only thing going on. (laughs) You know, and are we willing to see the shadow side? Are we willing to see the unskillful, the unwholesome? It's absolutely necessary. (laughs) This was highlighted, the importance of this was highlighted, it was some little example in one of one Dharma text, which really startled my mind a bit. It said, if you had the choice between coming down to breakfast and finding a check for $10 million, or finding your worst enemy there, who was ready to quite accurately point out all of your faults, which would be more valuable? <laughs> so I read that and I had to think for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> the 10 million was quite tempting. <laughs> Obviously this was in a Dharma context and so you know the, uh, you know the answer to that. So much value is placed on self-knowledge that it would be far better to meet with our worst enemy who could point things out to us than the $10 million because it's a chance for us to see, to understand. If we stay unaware, if we don't open up, if we stay unaware of our own motives, What happens in our lives is that we are simply acting out all the habit patterns of our conditioning. And some of the conditioning is good and wholesome and skillful, and some is not. But if we remain unaware, we're we're like sleepwalking through our lives. There's no possibility of choice. There's no possibility of wise discrimination. But what's quite 
surprising, delightfully surprising about this is that it's not a question of judging our shortcomings. Now, it's not a question of you know, being willing to see our faults or shortcomings or unskillful motives and then judging ourselves for them. The seeing of them can actually be a source of great joy because it's much more fulfilling and liberating to see them than not to see them. Because in the moment of seeing the unskillful parts of ourselves, the unwholesome parts, in that moment is the possibility of awakening, of freeing ourselves. In Abhidhamma terms, it's said, it's talked about how the unskillful can become the condition for the skillful. The unwholesome becomes the condition for the wholesome through mindfulness, through awareness. But even when we do have a willingness or an openness and and often a courage to look into our own hearts and to be willing to see what's really there, it still can at times be very confusing because sometimes the motives are obscure. We can't really see what they are. Sometimes they're mixed. Sometimes there's a series of conflicting motivations. I'll just mention one story in this regard. But the story has a little preface to it, and it's something you're quite familiar with. And that is the knowledge that among Dharma teachers, there is a fierce competition for a good story. You know, and it's like we're story vultures. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the background <laughs> to this story. So on the, this was a year or two ago. I was, I was on retreat, and I was reading through some of the suttas. And I came across a certain story in one of the suttas that... Uh, I thought Sharon would really like for a book she's working on on faith. I said, oh, that'd be great for the book. So that was my first thought. And then my second thought was, no, I want this story for myself. <laughs> and then my third thought was, no, I'll give her the story and that way more will come back to me. <laughs> Contemplating the law of karma. And then my fourth thought was, no, that's just being selfish. Just you know, give her the story. But then I thought, well, I'll, I'll tell her the story, but I'll also tell her everything I've gone through. <laughs> you know, my big inner dialogue and dilemma. But then when I looked at the motive in that, I really saw that I wanted to inculcate in her some, <laughs> you know, feeling of, immense gratitude or something. (laughs) And my mind was just going on and on, basically all self-referential, you know, of how I can maximize my my story karma. (laughs) And I began to wonder in the midst of this whole morass of thought, 
you know, where in the midst of this is there the motive, the basic motive of generosity and love and kindness? You know, because it was getting a little discouraging. <laughs> but I saw in the midst of all of this, and actually after it had run its course for quite a while, I saw that there was a moment of real love and generosity, and it was that very first moment. You know, the first thought I had, yeah, this is a story that she'd really like for her book. And what was most interesting in this whole little scenario was that I realized that even after going through that whole long train, I could always come back to that first moment of simplicity, of purity, of generosity. That is always available, even if we have to go through a little process to get there. You know, we can come back to that. So that was, that was actually very encouraging. First, that there can be enough mindfulness that we watch our minds go through all this in a non-judgmental way, just seeing you know, this train of conditioning, then come back to that moment of purity, that that's accessible to us. So in the end, I did just offer the story to Sharon, and she didn't even want it. <laughs> so... <laughs> that was the end of the story. <laughs> so we need to just pay attention because our motives, the motives behind our actions, the actions we end up taking, are the ones that determine our happiness or our suffering. And it's only through awareness that we can actually make some wise choices. Let the unskillful ones go, choose to act on those that are wholesome. It's all so simple, but it takes the discipline, as you know, and the, the willingness and the interest to be paying attention, paying attention to our own hearts, our own minds, so that we see what is actually going on that we're not just living out you know, our habit patterns. So given the importance of motivation and understanding you know, all of our many different motivations for practice, for coming here, which are very strong, you know, to come for a six-week or three-month retreat, some powerful motives are at work, and each one of us might have slightly different ones. But what's important, I think, in considering this, is to see that whatever our individual motivations are, they can be held in a larger context, and one that we've talked about before, and that is the context of bodhicitta. That is the aspiration that our efforts, our practice, our understanding be for the welfare and the benefit of all beings. The understanding that we are not just practicing for ourselves alone. And then even when 
we find ourselves doing things that are not so wholesome, that are not coming from this place of bodhicitta, the understanding or having planted the seed of this aspiration becomes the reference point so that even as we're doing more unskillful actions or unwholesome actions, our very aspiration of bodhicitta becomes the reference point reminding us that there's the possibility of other choices. There's a possibility of other directions. And that keeps bringing us back. So can we bring to life these reflections the reflection on impermanence, the deep seeing of impermanence in all the ways we talked about, in all the mind-transforming ways, contemplation on the law of karma, the recognition of the tremendous importance of motivation. Because these reflections, these understandings, are what keep turning our mind back to the, towards the Dharma, towards what is true, towards the possibility and actual experience in the moment of freedom and of compassion. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.